everybody. Thanks for joining us and on When I Grow Up. On this week's episode, I am interviewing a Dr. Anthony Hum, um, but I don't call him that. I call him Tony because he happens to be my cousin. Um, I'm excited for him to be here with me today because one, um, we've always lived far away from each other. So uh, I actually never really knew what he did. I just knew that he was really smart and a doctor. And um, we're also 10 years apart. So um, there is an age gap and I'm, I'm the youngest of the family. If you've been keeping up with the podcast, you know, on a previous episode, my other amazing cousin, Alicia, an AUSA was on and we were talking about how all my cousins are incredible people. I can't wait to hopefully, fingers crossed, have them all on, on the podcast. Um, but Another fun fact in the Kim family, or at least on my side of the family, um, is all of the guys are engineers, including my husband. Um, so, but um, Dr. Ham, Tony, is a biomedical engineer, right? That is correct. Yes. Okay. So, um, Tony, can you tell us what it is that you do? By the way, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you for um, asking. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Thanks for coming. Um, I sorry, I just got really excited, so I just jumped right in. But that's fine. Um, I'm really glad that you're able to do this with me. Thank you so much for your time. Um, Tony does have a family. Uh, he has he has two young kids, um, and they're probably sleeping right now. And also, uh, they got mar- uh, He got married to his wife just a few years ago, who's also lovely and also actually happens to be um, a doctor in the same field, which is pretty incredible. I feel like and very special. Um, maybe she can come on one day too on the podcast <laughs> but um anyways yes going back to the topic at hand um tony what did it what is it that you you do and um what is your job as a biomedical engineer so biomedical engineering is actually a pretty wide field you did briefly mention that both my wife and I are biomedical engineers However, we what, we what we're specialized, our area of expertise are completely disparate matters. So biomedical engineering is a very broad field. It's mm-hmm. essentially, if you wanted to sort of sum it up, what it can be is, is basically you're taking, you can basically take any engineering field, be it chemical, industrial, mechanical, electrical, computer engineer. And when you start applying it to the human body and the biological systems, then it becomes what you would eventually call biomedical engineering. Mm. So it's basically sort of the application, the further application of engineering towards the body and any sort of medical needs. So what I do is I, my, my, what I, my job is, is I'm a director of formulation at a biotech pharmaceutical company okay. here in Maryland. And what that basically entails is what I like to say is basically I take drugs and then I make medicine out of it. And what that essentially means is that there are, when drugs are being made, they all have to be applied or administered to the human body. Uh-huh. But what the needs to be done is it, you need to make it into a, an ingestible or an apl- appliable form. And that is what I do. So the pills that people eat, the injections they take, or the inhalers that they make, that is what I design and 
construct is that is that particular formulation. So it's the end product, the drug product that the patients or consumers end using. What? Really? That's crazy. So like, okay, so for somebody that knows nothing about this, um, I mean, so you're, you're talking about like just things like for that I would take over the counter. Right. So someone actually has to design that, you know, the Tylenol that you make, someone has to design the pill. Right. It even comes down to the necessities, the, the aesthetic properties of it. It's what, the, what it's shape, how it looks like its orientation. Is it a, mm. is it a circle? Is it a square? Is it an oval shape? Mm. Even the tastes, the colors, the smells, all the aesthetic, physical, chemical properties of a piece of medicine, a unit of medicine is designed for the patient, for the um, person going, going to be used. It's not just um, a system that kind of goes through. Interesting. Like, I don't know what other word to say because I'm just <laughs> in shock because because I never thought about it, you know, but obviously someone has to do that. So even like so as a director of formu- formulations, is that what you said? Right. Um, he, like, what do you like? What is exactly like, does your day look different every single day as you're working on new projects or what is it that you're directing or in charge of? So what I am directing of is I have a, I run a laboratory that basically where I do is we design, build, evaluate, and choose the dosage forms that any particular drug that is moving through our pipeline for Mm -hmm. manufacturing, for clinical trials, and eventually for FDA uh, approval and commercialization. So what are my, the majority of my work is, is designing uh, drug dosage forms. So it's designing what these drug products will look like. Um, it's, it's an analogy. It's not quite an exact analogy, but it's pretty close is it's a lot like cooking. Okay. Cooking, there is a definite science that goes into cooking. There is application of heat, you have volumes, you, in, you, in, you include ingredients at certain times, certain amounts, you mix them, you bake them, you freeze them. Uh-huh. All those things are exist in my lab. I have blenders, I have ovens, I have freeze dryers, I have everything that you would find in a normal kitchen, I, I have in my lab because wow. those are the same things that make, you know, there's a, there is, a, you know, an offshoot of formulation is food sciences. So, you know, I have instruments can tell you what's the tensile strength of a chocolate chip cookie or how sticky is marshmallows. You know, these are not things that happen by accident. They are designed very specifically or they are the end product of the inevitable design that comes into. Mm. So things that you are consumed would be these drugs. They are they're designed and formulation scientists and engineers, they are the ones who design it. And move it forward. Wow. So that's what you, so like, are you like um, during the day, like say on a typical work day, I know we're in COVID-19 quarantine <laughs> lockdown, but on a typical work day, like, are you working in a lab directly or do you have people that do that, that work for you? Me personally, I have, uh, I have direct reports that do the actual experiments. So the majority okay. of my time is the synthesis, the the design of the experiments oh. and the evaluation. So for looking at a typical day while we're running through the process, it is, okay, today we are going to test formulation A, B, C, and D. 
We're going to make them. Usually it doesn't take one day. So we make them, uh-huh. we then gather them, and then we evaluate them. And from that particular A, B, C, and D, we then choose, okay, based off of these particular characteristics that we like, we then move on, okay, we're, we're going to take C, D, mm-hmm. and then make variations of those, and we move forward. So it's a very iterative, scientific approach process then that you develop a your next iteration. So basically data and science will dictate what is your next step until you come up with what is it hopefully the most optimal formulation dosage form for your future medicine. So before you were in this position, I'm curious, like, I mean, obviously you, you know, did your graduate program and your PhD program and all of that in this time, like, were you, um, working on specific projects before getting where you are today? I don't know if my question makes any sense. I guess what I'm trying to say is, um, what is your favorite part of the job? You know, I'm curious to know, like, do you like being hands-on or do you like, you know, assessing the formulations and kind of, um, what do you call that? Like, you know, distributing or giving it to other people to work on? So it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, being an engineer and spending most of the time, I like building things. That's mm. probably the most satisfying thing is having a thing at the end of the day where it's like we can touch it, we can feel it. It's like I made this mm. item that yeah. if we go through the next iterative steps, could be something that you could use, someone else could use. And that is the most rewarding part of that. Now, while I do like working at the lab, the, you know, actually being the person at the bench top, mm-hmm. there is a limit of how many how many things that one person can do. So I've right. been at that side where I was the only person in my lab. I was designing the experiments, running the experiments. Oh my gosh! That is, and and doing all the pouring, mixing, baking, freezing, whatever, and testing. And there's a limit of what one person can do. And so that slow that. That's your bottleneck. And while I would prefer working at the lab, being designing it, so being at the very beginning where I get to design it and being at the very end where I can evaluate it, that's the most rewarding part. But if I can have a lab of scientists who are good at the assays, good at doing the pro- doing the actual experiments, I can do multiple things at one time. So mm. it's a little bit of both. I do lament not probably being on this hands-on as I probably could be mm. at a, on the bench level. But I get to do a lot more. My bandwidth is a lot more uh, up, um, wider. Is a lot wider when I have people who work in my lab, and I can tell them, "Okay, we're going to try this today." And then when those things are done, we're going to evaluate these type of products. Sure. So delegating the work is actually more efficient and effective in what it is that you want to accomplish. I guess. This is very true because especially when you're working in the, when you're working in pharmaceutical industry, time outside of money, of course, time is your biggest factor. Okay. You want to identify your product, your formulation as fast as possible. Right. Because that means you can then move it on to manufacturing, you can move it on to cl- animal testing or clinical trials mm-hmm. and all the regulatory things that goes on into uh, filing and commercialization. Because when you have a drug that could potentially be a medicine, you are running against a very specific patent clock mm-hmm. before you can start getting any return on your investment. And okay. making drugs, making medicine 
is not a cheap venture. Sure, so, I wouldn't imagine it is. <laughs> so it is. It it is a. So you're always wanting to sh- shorten your research and development time as possible because you can't rush clinical trials because mm-hmm. clinical trials are going to be. You know, you have a certain amount of time. They happen x amount of time Mm -hmm. regulatory filings things that happen on the later stages Mm -hmm. can't be rushed but the beginning parts the preclinical stuff the things that happen before you test in humans or animals those can be as those things can be done as fast as you can pump them out so if you Mm -hmm. can shorten that time frame the whole other the whole timeline gets shortened down that way so having more people obviously makes it a lot easier and you can evaluate things a lot faster Oh, wow. That's insane. I just still can't wrap my head around it. But I'm curious also, like as you're talking, you know, because, you know, medicine is a necessary thing. You know, I believe I mean, like, as far as, you know, my kids are healthy, we're healthy. But, you know, even just in, in other countries as well, I know there's a lack of medication that is provided. Um, but anyways, we have, we have this um, assurance, right, that I, I have access to medicine. I'm curious, like, as you're talking about it, this is such an important job, right? Because someone has to biomedically engineer these things so that we can... Do you work on vaccines too? I have worked on vaccines. Uh-huh. But not currently. Not currently. Okay. But um, what... Am I, I don't know if I'm if I'm even allowed to ask you this, but like, can you share some of the maybe projects as far as medications and drugs that you've worked on in the past or currently that um, maybe we are we as a society have been impacted by? <laughs> so sure, um, actually, the majority of my career thus far has been focused on does, uh, uh, formulating. Preventative HIV medicines. So basically, yes. So the majority (laughs) of my work has been working, has been basically designing dosage forms to prevent HIV infections, specifically in developing nations. So we are, so we're looking at developing uh, formulations that prevent HIV in basically targeting uh, Sub Saharan Africa and in India, particularly. Um, not only that, we are, we, what I've done, what I've specialized in, in is women controlled HIV prevention, preventative medicine. So this includes, um, HIV medicines that women can use to prevent the transmission of HIV from their partners, um, whether covertly or overtly, whatever. It's basically designed so that it's not incumbent on the man to, um, to have any sort of protection that the women themselves can control their, uh, well, can control the uh, situation. So this involves basically designing very specific and varied amounts of dish formulations, because as you may, you may be able to guess, different women around the world have vastly different preferences. So what will be preferable to a woman in the United States may not track with a woman who is from Spain or a woman from Uganda or a woman from Delhi. So you can't really have a one product fits all because you're going to need women to want to use them. 
And that's a very, very important part of drug medicine that kind of gets overlooked is patient compliance. You got to actually have a medicine that people are going to take or it's effectively useless, right? I mean, you can have a thing that cures all cancer, but if it comes in a spiky ball that you have to shove in your eye, sorry for a really bad imaging, but it comes in a really bad packaging, Right. no one's going to take it and it renders it useless. So you actually, a very important aspect of medicine design is personal is, is preference, is user acceptability, perception, what people think about it. So what I spent a lot of my uh, formulation career is designing different dosage forms. So what that means is I've taken a lot of work of a lot of antivirals. Um, probably the most well-known is Truvada. Um, oh, uh, yes. Made, made by Gilead. That, um, so we've taken that drug uh, and we've formulated it into different dosage forms. Um, for instance, we've used that we've made it into a quick dissolving film. We've made it into transdermal patches. We've made it into suppositories. We've made it into semi-solid creams, gels, just a whole range of different dosage forms or, or and, and intervaginal rings, basically different dosage forms so that we can sort of cover the whole spectrum range of what women are willing to use to prevent HIV. The most extreme example that I can have, that, that I, by extreme, I don't mean like, like graphic or anything, but suppositories. Suppositories are a, you know, unsupp- are a solid dosage form uh-huh. that are either, you know, that are administered lo- locally. But in the United States, suppositorial do- uh, drug administration is very, very unpopular. You right. base, you really <laughs> cannot find it in anything and anything. It's basically, unless it's, they'll find every other possible route of administration. But sure. in Europe, for instance, it is actually a more, more acceptable. And you can actually find a lot of different, um, um, over the counter drugs that are delivered, uh, through suppositories. So what a product that would work in Europe, uh-huh. won't necessarily work in the United States, despite it being a type of thing. So you have to sort of cover your wide range of dosage forms, particularly when you're dealing with a topical dosage form. So mm. when you're doing something systemic, like if you're dealing with a pill or an injection, you really have a, just a basic dosage form because people are familiar with that. But when you're delivering something locally, something very specific to the, to the site of infection or prevention, you have to really take into account what are what they're going to use because if they're not going to use it, it doesn't matter how effective it is at preventing HIV because you would think that just the mere threat of HIV would be enough to um, make influence someone to wanting to use. No, we're finding out that even with the uh, with an epidemic of HIV, which still exists in some in in developing nations. With that, the prevalence of HIV infection, you would think that given the opportunity to have a, a dosage, a drug that prevents that, they would use it regardless of what it's in. No, preference is that strong. It's that strong of a motivator that even if you give it, you, they ha- it has to be something that they are willing to use. Okay, so people listening to the podcast can't see my face, but I'm like so floored because... <laughs> I'm well, one, I can't, I don't know why I didn't know this about you. 
Because that's amazing. I mean, that is like, like you're a semi superhero in my book. Because, <laughs> no, because, because like, you know, that is, that is something that is so prevalent right now in other countries. And you said it still exists in some countries. I know that it does. And, you know, I've worked with third world countries before just in um, church ministry and things like that. And I know, um, that it is prevalent. And I had no idea that a drug like this existed. I mean, do you know how much access people have to drugs like this? Well, that's the interesting thing. Um, so a lot of these clinical trials, they are, they go to these particular areas. And actually one of the tenants of a lot of these uh, drugs, which are classified as microbicides, uh-huh. are designed to be low cost, not only okay. low cost, but also low manufacturing so that they could be manufactured anywhere in the world. So designing, so for instance, um, if you were drugs that were be drugs that would be like an injectable, something that comes in a needle or something that's a liquid format aren't particular optimal because things that are in liquid format usually have to be refrigerated. Also uh, shipping, they're coming glass bottles, there's equipment that you have to inject them in so there's a there are material costs in terms of shipping manufacturing storage that that jack up the price right but if you have for instance a are you familiar with the uh, listerine strips right sure yeah like those mouth strips put in your mouth exactly okay those are quick dissolving thing one of the things that i have specialized in is making uh quick dissolving films that have drug inside it <gasps> now as wow. you can notice they come in little packages. They're very small, uh-huh. very discreet. They're light and they are extremely cheap to manufacture. So you basically all, and it's also a, it's an extrusion or a, or a uh, evaporation method that exists. It's a technology for it exists world round, worldwide without really any specialized, hardcore specialized um, equipment, meaning that if need be, it can be produced on site as opposed to having to be made somewhere and then shipped to wherever it needs to be. So access of it is, well, granted one hasn't been particularly gone through completely uh, completely approved yet. So access in and of itself is only limited to clinical trials that people have have, uh, access to. So it's not commercialized yet. So access is limited to really being part of clinical trials or existing uh, pre-exposure prophylactics, which mm-hmm. exist a few, a few that exist on, on the market right now. But okay, those so are- This is still a, like kind of an ongoing thing then. Correct. Okay, I see. Um, like when, so the, the product itself has to get through clinical trials and then what happens? Like so how does it, it get on the market? So then after it goes through clinical trials, you take all your data and then you have to go through your regulatory- submission so whatever wherever you're going so in the united states if it's the fda okay and the fda has an entire long process that goes to evaluate any new drug that comes on the market sure and that process is pretty arduous and very specific because it needs Mm. to be you know you need to be very clear that these are safe tolerable and that you know what you are making Mm. so that is essentially the final hurdle that any developing drug medicine needs to pass is approval from whatever regulatory that regulatory commission administration uh, uh, organization that they are submitting to. I see. 
So and from there, they can be then from I'm sorry, from then they can be commercial, like manufactured and commercialized, and it can become something that is available. Okay. Um, I see. That's a long process. <laughs> it is. It, it is a very long. It is a very very long process. Um, I mean, it's, it's just like you know. I feel like this is an urgent thing, but the process has to happen to save lives. I guess. Right. So <laughs> it 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 is it is. It, Despite any sort of urgency of any particular epidemic, pandemic, whatever I would have you, you still need to follow the exact same regulatory guidelines because they are set in place to ensure that this is a safe product. Because everything, anything made can look good right now, but it needs to also look good six months down the line, nine months down the line, two years down the line. And that, right. I mean, and that can only yeah. happen with time or with very rigorous testing that can predict or assure any regulatory commission that this is going to be safe later down the line. Mm. So it seems like it's a roadblock, but it's really designed to ensure that when these drugs are out there, that nothing bad happens. Right. So I asked this hesitantly, honestly, but like our companies like yours like working on something for you know COVID-19 every (laughs) just about every biopharmaceutical company that has seen either tangential orthogonal or direct relation to treatment vaccine palliative care is working on something I mean it's 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 kind of astounding just to find be a number of companies that find like, oh, this, because it's not, because it's, uh, you know, uh, the corona, this coronavirus is a respiratory virus, uh, respiratory disease. It's not necessarily, so it's, it's a, it's a system that people know. So if you have drugs that even in the pipeline that were not necessarily designed or actually have an effect on the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. You have drugs that are out there that have effect on respiratory circulatory systems that are affected by the corona, which then can be pivoted towards palliative or even treatments from people who are affected with COVID-19. So, mm-hmm. you know, not just being opportunistic, but in terms of just being beneficial, there are many companies that are, if they have seen any sort of opportunistic um, value mm-hmm. in any in any currently developing drug to help combat or eradicate or treat COVID-19, mm-hmm. you can be sure that they are definitely working on it. Okay. That's good to know. So really, you know, you are part of the frontline heroes in my book. But... I don't know about that, but <laughs> it's definitely, it's, 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 you know, whenever there is, you know, you make medicine. So medicine, what you, why do we even need medicines? It's because, there are diseases, there are drugs, you know, mm. there, there are these diseases and uh, illnesses out there. So, yeah. you know, anything that comes up, this is right now the biggest healthcare issue. So, you know, every, every company, every organization that can potentially work on this, there is an event, there is a, there is an advantage to be doing it because it's, yeah. it is something that is being fast tracked or being prioritized to being, you know, to something there. But, on the, on the other hand, despite being saying that everyone needs to be cautious, 
mm-hmm. because because things are being fast checked because mm-hmm. this is urgent this is mm-hmm. happening right now mm-hmm. in real time mm-hmm. you everyone who's involved and people looking from the outside need to understand that with every positive new development or announcement of certain drugs or certain treatment or certain cures that may be coming up these are preliminary data because this is happening right now there are no long term studies that coming that are coming out this so everything is brand new mm-hmm. so everything you know it every it's it's all it's all right now time yeah. time is going to be a big factor of when everything kind of happens mm. oh, gosh time I want to just get back to normal, if I'm honest, but I know that everyone wants that, but it's a necessary time that needs to happen, I think. And everyone, like, like you said, not just you guys in the, in the pharmaceutical, like pharmaceutical people that are working on it need, need to be cautious, but like, we all just need to be cautious in general. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> but, um, so I mentioned that, you know, you are in my book, kind of a superhero just from hearing everything that you work on and what you do um i also remember growing up that you were really into superheroes you know and or in comics and things like that and i remember that you um sorry i broke my not broke Uh, if you guys heard episode one when i tore two ligaments in my ankle um i had a cast for six months and um it was during that time we had some sort of family reunion and you drew this like really awesome like animation graffiti on my cast and because it was so awesome i actually like kept kept my cast for like years i finally threw it out cuz it got really gross but, but that was but, a good idea <laughs> yeah but um those are the things that i remember about you but um i say all that to say like you know did you know that you wanted to be doing this when you graduated high school like what was all of that process for you you know like when you as you entered college like did you already decide i'm going to go down this road or what what kind of things happened in your life that brought you to where you are today so, to be a superhero the you know the things that you were into before <laughs> all right i will not neither acknowledge or deny that but <laughs> My pathway into my career has actually has actually always been very straight and very sort of unbranching. Really? Um, um I have as long as I can remember wanted to be an engineer to the point where I have memories where in primary school where people ask what do you really want to grow up I would always say engineer and have to explain to the other kids no I didn't want to work with trains I wanted to build things mm. to the point where even an engineer was not a common term that kids knew other than oh engineer work with trains <laughs> I will say I remember that too that you were always <laughs> like building things and you know had um toys that were not for me to touch only you could touch them <laughs> does your daughter touch your toys tony so my entire life with all these toys that i have been accumulating in my life i've been building up to the fact to give, to give them to uh my children my daughter like for instance i love lego which seems to be the most typical thing that if you're an engineer because it's literally primordial yes, building legos yes 
she absolutely loves Lego and she is pretty decent at building things. And, you know, I, you know, I am more than happy to give everything all the, actually, literally, no, actually not just more than happy. I have already given her all my Legos. (laughs) There's a giant box downstairs in her playroom. How fun though. So special that um, Stella loves those kind of things. Yeah. So she is really also into Lego right now. So that is also pretty cool. I was like, yes. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool. I know that sentiment because Eli is the same age as Stella, your daughter, mm-hmm. and he is just now really getting into Legos. We were at the the bigger Legos, but now we're at the smaller Legos, and David is just ecstatic, like thrilled, like they he, that they can share that together. Me, not a, really a Lego person. I'm like, can we just put them away? There's so many, but then like. But, you know, they're really enjoying it. So I understand that sentiment. But going back, you said that you've always liked building things. And you've so, always wanted, knew, knew that you wanted to be an engineer, right? Yeah. And that actually probably has a lot to do with my family, our family. Mm-hmm. Um, my father is an engineer. My grandfather is an engineer. One of my uncles uh, is an engineer. Uh engineer uh, so and also there are several phds in our family so i really it's not like they said that oh you can you can either be a doctor or a lawyer you know you can choose from all the you can choose from all the professions you can be lawyer doctor what else is there it, it's just <laughs> that i was always influenced by that um, either subconsciously or not i've always been i always gravitated toward the sciences particularly chemistry so and coupling that once I learned that it wasn't you can do chemistry but build things, I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. I want to be mm-hmm. that thing that will allow me to apply the sciences and make something in the product. Because I, I always found that science is great. Science is 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 wonderful. Like, but with the and I'll call them basic sciences, not to be dismissive, but that's basically what it is. It's mm-hmm. you know your your basic sciences, your chemistry, your your physics. They understand the the first principles of of the world that we live in. Mm-hmm. You know they understand you know the biologies. They they're it's, it's the the basic sciences, but their end product their end product their end goal isn't something. It's just the discovery. It's knowledge, which is great, but for me, I've always had this background thing in my head and I didn't really able, was able to really uh, to voice it until I started speaking and talking about these things. It's so what? Mm. And what I mean by that is, okay, you've discovered this great new chemical that does this thing and these things, or you discover this new, you know, functionality. First thing in my mind is, so what? Mm. What can I do with it? Now it's not mean to be dismissive, but my thing is like, okay, we this you've come to a good starting point. What can we do with it? Mm. So like, what can we do? Like, what can we do with this knowledge to make something better? To make you know either people's lives better, or to make something cool, or you know, basically you build something to advance science because all these sciences, you know, all these things in medicine, chemistry, science, physics, math, they use instruments that were built and designed by engineers. So it's a circular type of thing. You know, the next new technology is what's what then circumvents back, what goes back and then brings about 
the next new discovery, so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So the part that interested me most was the part that made the thing that people used. So I kind of always knew it to be to the point of being almost annoyingly dorky throughout all <laughs> primary school, all secondary school, all high school. I knew, I knew I wanted to be a chemical engineer. Wow. And does that sound really stupidly dorky? Yes, but you know what? That's what I wanted to do. And it it really sort of focuses what I needed to do mm. or what sort of things I needed to look for. Mm-hmm. So probably the first big decision that any child or any person, young person makes on their own generally is if they're going to go, if they're going to university or college, which university or college they're going to go to. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, it's, it's filled with uncertainty or it's kind of like, you know, what do I go to? Do I just go with the the name brand, the, you know, the most prestigious one, or I do go to local school um, you know, for you know, uh, practical reasons, or you know, there are many universities out there worldwide. How do you choose? Mm-hmm. And obviously, there are some schools that are better at certain disciplines than others. Mm-hmm. And what happens if you choose one school and you decide you want to do discipline, but it's not the best in that particular discipline, and then you have to change schools, <laughs> or or things like that. So. Going into that process after high school, knowing that I wanted to study chemical engineering, really focused what schools I wanted to go to. So basically, I just chose schools that had uh, robust and highly accredited uh, programs in chemical engineering. And where did you go? I went to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Oh, cool. So, Actually, I knew that. I already knew that. But and then did, where did you do your graduate program? So I did my PhD at the University of Virginia. Okay. Um, what is kind of interesting to me as you're sharing about just your trajectory and you, you always knowing what you wanted to do is that when you got like your mind didn't change because I I've met a lot of people where you know they kind of know they feel like they know what they want to do but as they enter their major in college and really start to take major classes I have found a lot of people realize that's not what they wanted to do but for you I'm assuming that as you're doing these major classes did you just fall like more in love with it or absolutely not So that doubt, that doubt, that hesitance, I, I want to say that's a pretty common thing. So okay. yeah, as you're taking, so I'll be quite honest, chemical engineering is a very difficult discipline. No, it's, I mean, like I, chemistry sucked for me, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very difficult discipline and it was not something that I would say is particularly fun or enjoyable Mm -hmm. (laughs) and so going through it it was not a it was not a thing that was saying oh this is more fun or I love it I mean there were there were aspects of it that that I did like but there are many many aspects that I just hated and it also basically turned into sort of a thing of perseverance so I knew what I wanted to do at the end. Mm. 
And there was a lot of things that I came across in the media time to get there that I found was very difficult, very discouraging to the point where sometimes like, why am I even doing this? Mm -hmm. But I knew what the possibilities were out there. I knew that once this was done, I could do, or at least I would, I would think that I could do this thing that I mm. think that I wanted to do. Because yeah. again, with any, with any discipline that you're learning in college, you're not necessarily, even if you pick any particular major, it's not, you're not beholden to whatever specific thing that you're learning. Mm-hmm. For example, in chemical engineering, my example, chemical engineering, a big component of the program at the University of Illinois is fluid and mass transport. What that basically kind of boils down to, if what you're looking at, what sort of job involves lots of fluid and mass transport, it's the petroleum industry. Uh, it's the oil industry. And that is kind of what is kind of really suited for the type of math and things that they were, that taught there. But I knew for a fact that was not at all what I was interested in. So I was learning all these things. What's could technically lead me to that particular path, but did them because they were required requirement for the app for the degree. But I knew that in the end, I would probably use them, but not in the way that they were necessarily teaching us to kind of leading us in that most applicable way. So, yeah, it's not, it was not a sort of, Oh, this is, I was, it's not a pathway that I was in love with the entirely time of it it was a time it's but it but it was never waving where i said i didn't want to do it i see but it was like there were times where it was this is really really hard Mm. to to do yeah i mean thank you for sharing that part of your life because i feel like um people don't realize that you just gotta sometimes if you if you know where you want to go you have to just tough it out, you know, persevere, like you said. And um, I mean, from where I sit, it paid off. Um, your PhD program in itself, was that more focused on what it is that you actually wanted to do? Yes. And that is a thing that's actually very, very important is I find in retrospect that my undergraduate experience and um, training or education and through talking with other colleagues and this through some teaching that I've done at the University of Virginia for undergraduates is that this is going to sound really, really bad, but it kind of doesn't matter where you go for your undergraduate degree Mm -hmm. in the end Um, because in the United States in general, unless you're going something for very, very specific reasons, in my anecdotal opinion, you get the same, you get similar quality level of training and education. I cannot tell you how many people I know that graduated in my class at the University of Illinois in chemical engineering who ended up not doing anything in chemical engineering, not necessarily because they hated chemical engineering, I don't know for certain, but the education you get on your undergraduate is sort of almost a baseline skill set that you can be that can technically be used in just about any anything that you want to do. Mm. So while you may earn 
a degree, a BS in chemical engineering, it doesn't mean you can't use the same skill sets that you learn to get that degree in mm-hmm. computer engineering or electrical engineering or mm-hmm. even, not even something in engineering to begin with. Mm-hmm. But if you are interested in pursuing a graduate degree, that is when you do need to decide what sort of thing that you are going to, what you want to focus on because you really start building a relationship with the department that you're working into and the subject matter. So mm-hmm. PhD is a basically you're taking, you're picking a very focused area of expertise and doing a deep dive into that particular thing. It's no longer a generalization. You're taking something that you're interested in and trying to become the expert in the room in that particular subject. So where you go is really should be important to how you feel about the department, what you feel about your, 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 what you're going to be studying, and particularly how you feel about what particular, who you'll be working with. So mm-hmm. the labs, you know, it's, it, I highly recommend anyone who is going to go into a graduate degree, mm-hmm. talk to the faculty members mm-hmm. and talk to the students, find out what it is like to work in those particular labs. Even if you don't happen to work in that particular lab, knowing what it looks, knowing what it, what the, the, culture of the particular lab in that particular university would be almost as important as any prestige you go to by picking, you know, the top of the line university for your graduate studies. Mm-hmm. Because there are, in my opinion, world-class scientists, professors working at all levels of university. Find one that's doing the thing that you are most interested in and pursue that. Yeah, that's great advice. Really good. How long, so from, you know, undergrad to the end of your PhD program, how, how long in years were you in school? So for me, um, including my undergraduate and my PhD, that was 10 years of school. Oh, my goodness. But it was worth it, right? I believe so, mainly um, because it gave me it gave me clarity and focus of mm. what I want to do in, in once I became a real person, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> not in academia. Yes. Yes. Because it gave me, it gave me a area of expertise that I was very confident in that if mm. I walked into a room, I would, I would be fairly certain that I would know exactly what I was talking about in that mm. particular field. Yeah, I mean, that. I feel like that's really saying something, too. I mean, not a lot of people, I feel like, can say that about what they do. But hopefully the people that come on this podcast do. But anyways, um, you know, I was going to ask you something. It slipped my mind now. But if it comes back, I'll come back to it. But in, in – oh, I, oh, I remember. I remember the question now. Um, your PhD – program i know that a lot of phd students they when they are graduating they have to do like a some sort of dissertation or thesis or something like that um was that uh something you had to do as well that's correct yeah that's pretty standard for all phd Uh programs is you do a final dissertation and it varies the the format varies but usually you do a presentation and defense of your work that you've done at your time um, at at your your PhD work. Um, did yours have to do with HIV? It did curious. not. 
It did not. It actually, well, what it what actually, was it? It was actually in targeted nanoparticle drug delivery. So actually, the lab that I worked in, we worked in cardiovascular diseases. So oh. basically, uh, uh, cardiac infarctions or inflammation. So the vast difference in in disease model. So mm-hmm. I worked. My PhD was you know in, uh, in vascular disease, but I moved into HIV through my postdoc work. So oh. it kind of, so actually what it, with this sort of transition actually kind of illustrates, if I may, tangentially talk about something. What is postdoc work? I don't know what that is. Sorry. It, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's basically postdoctoral. So postdoctoral, postdoctoral work is generally like a fellowship. It's, if I'm being kind of flippant, it's kind of like advanced graduate studies. Oh, more basically. studying. Great. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's more studying. So, but it's, it's still a, it's still a position. It's still, I guess, what I would consider like a job. Okay. I see. Because you're, you I guess that's you, what I was asking. Because really. you are paid for, you're not getting any sort of education. You're not taking classes. Um, but you are, you, so it is sort of a, a more advanced training after your, after your PhD. Okay, so during that time is when you uh, became became interested in HIV work. Well, in and of it's not exactly where I became. I joined an HIV lab. So after oh, okay, my okay. graduate study, I joined a lab that did HIV preventative medicine at the McGee Women's Research Institute at the mm-hmm. University of Pittsburgh. Okay. So I was going in knowing that I would be working with HIV. So. This sort of actually illustrates sort of the flexibility and why I've been able to work with so many different things is that formulation, dosage for formulation is the same thing that happens regardless of your disease model. Because despite human variability and the myriad of different individuality, any drug has to go into the human body. So that's the same endpoint. So it doesn't really matter as much if I'm working with cardiovascular disease, I'm working with um, HIV or working with, uh, influenza mm-hmm. or dengue, any sort of disease, they still need to be put into a pill or a injectable that goes into the human body. So it's kind of like a gatekeep that all drug needs to go through and some similar, you know, have to look the same because people, again, coming up with that thing, human preference. You mm-hmm. come up with a weird shaped pill or it smells funny or it tastes funny, it's not going to be a successful product. So they all kind of have to look the same. So being able to transition from one disease model to another isn't as difficult as one would think because the part that I like, the part that I specialize in is almost a constant in all drug development. Interesting. Man, a lot of things that I would never even think of. But now every time I take medicine, not only am I going to think about you, but I'm going to think about all the work that went into me taking this pill. Um, Can I ask you, is there a part of the job that you don't like or you just wish was better or is there something that yeah that you just what's the worst part of the job for you or is there no worst part no i think the well i mean i I think every (laughs) everything has a worst part just by relativistically (laughs) comparison but the thing that frustrates i think me the most about drug development is i 
being a scientist, being an engineer, I'm totally okay with the end product being what it is. Mm. But there are financial, commercial, and, and regulatory requirements and obligations that often have an influence on the science. Mm. So what I find sometimes frustrating is science is not always free to produce what it wants to produce. Mm. Sometimes time, sometimes money, actually oftentimes money mm -hmm. and investments, investors, return on investment, they have a not an insignificant impact on how things are done and how they're conducted. So th there are more than a few times where there have been discussions, I'll put my lead, with um, other members of uh, executive teams that have pushed for certain things where the scientists, the science ends of it, where we're like, these things are not as reasonable. So having to spend time to explain why certain things cannot be done despite mm. timelines can get actually be very frustrating mm. because they are not, because everyone wants to get to the same goal. Mm -hmm. It's just that some, their prior, different people have different priorities. And, you know, not every problem can be solved by, well, a lot of problems can be solved by putting more money into it, but not every problem can be solved with putting more money into it. And right. when that happens, there are, you know, times where it, it seems frustrating that mm. these are the reasons why certain things aren't being done. Mm. Um, on a personal level, like, how do you, like, mitigate that? Like, you just have to deal with it or? <laughs> it, it seems almost flippant to say deal with it, but in a way it kind of, it, it's part of, it's part of, I guess, the whole package. Because mm -hmm. as I've mentioned previously, making medicine is not a cheap venture. So that money does have to come from somewhere. So wow. considerations of financial considerations are a part you know they are a frustration or a burden that 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 do need to be that do need to be dealt with mm. so it's one of those things where you just present what you have you know the science and data is what it is and if people don't accept it you just have to keep presenting it and it, you know you just keep presenting it until you know Either they come around, or you know, ultimately there's a there's a, a loggerheads where you know you prove that's like you know we can't physically move any forward until you accept that this is what the reality happens to be. Right. Often, very often times that doesn't happen, mm -hmm. which is th which I'm very thankful for. But <laughs> there are times where it's been very close, where it's been very close, where it just the refusal to accept the reality of any particular science is getting close to being like, well, if, if this doesn't happen, this project is dead. Right. Right. Yes. Um, what about things that you love? Like I, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning of our conversation, but um, yeah. Is there something that you wanted to share that maybe that you just really do love about the job? Oh, I love making things. I love when we finished up, like making a, a prototype. I love, I love 
touching it. I like saying it. So I love having it in my hand saying like, yes, okay, this is a thing that we made. Take a look at it, smell it, taste it, look at it. You know, that having a, a physical man, the physical manifestation of science in my, in, yeah. in my hand, I think is actually one of the best things. It's one of the reasons why I'm an engineer because it's, we get to make something, you know, it's like, this is, this is something cool. This is something neat. You know, you can touch it, you can feel it and you can kind of show people in, in a way that's saying like, we made this, you know, like, and that is, I think that is possibly one of the best feelings. And, and if that product ever gets out, you know, you can point on the shelf, like, yeah, I had a hand in making that, yeah. in that particular medicine. I mean, it really is incredible. I can't imagine that satisfaction. Like, I mean, that's with anything, but like, especially like all this hard work and even hearing the process of what needs to take place for the product to um, hit the shelves. I mean, that is just, I'm sure, so gratifying. Um, and I can see even just um, watch, listening to you and seeing you talk about it. Like you just love what you do, huh? <laughs> you love it, right? I mean, it's, it that's, what, that's what it's about though. I mean, I want people, you know, to love what they do and to find something, you know, their niche in life. And I feel like you have um, done just that. I mean, just talking to you, I'm like, wow, this is so great. <laughs> It's so exciting. So, like, um, it, can you tell me a product that's maybe hit the shelves that you've done? <laughs> I only have one product that is commercially available. It's not a drug. What is it? <laughs> it is a personal lube. Really? Yes. <laughs> so, the story oh, behind it. The story As behind you're... As your youngest cousin, I feel a little uncomfortable, but go ahead, keep going. (laughs) Hey, when you work in women's health, you work in an area that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. Okay, okay. So so part of the designing, so in my work in um, microbicides, um, I I developed a formulation that was designed to to deliver several antiviral drugs. Uh Uh-huh. And as I'd mentioned also previously, user perception is a very, very key role in designing what your final product is going to be. Because as I also mentioned, topical drugs for women's health is a very personally preferenceable thing. So if it's it's too sticky, if it's too hard, it's too leaky, if it smells weird, women are not going to use it. Mm. So a colleague of mine is a social scientist and she does user perception studies to quantify the qualifiable so she's able to have metrics to sort of rank and quantify things like leakiness or slipperiness or stickiness or perception or silkiness things like that now the reason i'm telling you this is that turns out one of these formulations that i made turned out to be pretty good at lubrication interesting so the company that I was working for took that idea as like, huh, this is a pretty good lubrication. Also, it is a water-based lubrication, not the traditional uh, lubrication that is oftentimes on the market, which is um, glycerin-based, which is a sugar, meaning that if you don't wash it out, you can get fungus and mold growth because it is a sugar, which things, oh, bacteria gosh. things can grow there. 
So okay. <laughs> we, so we're going. You, you asked. No, I want to know. Tell me. Tell me. So we have a we have a water based um, um, lubrication. Now, for the most part, a lot of water based lubrications are, in terms of uh, lubricity, much 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 inferior to the glycerin-based or the silicon-based lubrications that are on the market. Uh-huh. But we did some measurements and we found that this particular lube has very similar lubricity and lasting uh, lubricity as a lot of these glycerin-based products. So it turned out that the company I work for was interesting. Well, what if we take out the drug and just make a personal lube? So that became like a side product. <laughs> that became like a side project for this company. And we did some studies. We did, we did, uh, because it was part of a, um, drug development study. We actually had all the safety and toxicity studies that we could present as saying that this product is biologically and clinically. We actually have clinical data that says this is a safe product. Something you may not know is that you're not actually required to show that any product out there, like any medical device or cosmetic or supplement, actually is beneficial. You only have to show that it's not harmful. Uh-huh. Just putting that out there. So okay, that scares so, me. But all right, <laughs> it just means that it's it just means that it's not harmful. Doesn't okay. mean it does it doesn't mean that does anything positive. Just means that doesn't do anything negative. Okay. But we had all this data that showed not only was it not harmful, non toxic. It was, we could prove it. Mm. So they made a whole ad campaign. They did a whole um, focus group. And we did some patents on the, the formulation. And it is the only product that I've had designed that, that directly designed. In fact, I would be willing to say I invented it. That is on the market. That you That's can go out and buy. Crazy. <laughs> and it's a lube. <laughs> Oh, the pride of our family. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, well, that's amazing information that I never imagined you to tell me, but um, so awesome and on so many <laughs> levels, right? <laughs> um, well, before we end our time together, Tony, I one thing I like to ask my guests is, um, is there any advice that you would give to people listening or even... Um, People that are maybe interested in going into chemical engineering or just advice in general? I think Voltaire said it. He says, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Mm. There is a, I guess it's becoming less of an issue, but there is, since we are talking about Asian Americans, Mm -hmm. there is a if not a stereotype, but at least a pressure or a prevalence of overachievement that gets yeah. put on to a lot of children, second, maybe even third generation mm-hmm. children in the United States to be perfect, to strive for it. And that I find can stymie a lot of potential opportunities that you're kind of going through. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you, even if the end goal is the same, even if you are going to be that PhD or that MD, being perfect can lead more likely lead to burnout and just 
just dissatisfaction than being good enough to get to the end goal because mm -hmm. your studies, no matter how long you do, isn't the end goal of your life. Getting the MD, getting your PhD, this, this time period of your early 20s, from let's just say from 20s to your 30s, that isn't your life. That is not what, that's not the end part of it. You still got the rest of your life yeah. to, to live, to do things, to even be great things. So even if you're not perfect, it is good enough to be what you want to be. And so my advice is, you know, you know, I, you know, sometimes PhD is, it's about perseverance. It's not necessarily about doing the perfect thing. Oh, I love a, that. That's really uh, good. Uh-huh. Keep going. It, it's being about, it's, be, it's it, this sounds like a put down, but it's about being good enough. It's a, it's a very important tenet. And I will tie this back down to things that I do in my work and something I expound very often when I give talks is, Good enough sometimes is better than the best. What I mean by that in an example in terms of, in terms of developing drugs is the common perception is that the candidate, the drug candidate that has the best activity, the most efficacy, the things that will have the best promise in the lab of curing whatever disease, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the best product because just because it has the best potential, mm -hmm. it could potentially also have incompatibility with whatever dosage form that you're going to be putting into. So just because you have the best activity, your best candidate, mm -hmm. it could actually become worse when you need to put it into a person. But if you take your second or even third candidate just through synthesis or synergy with the formulation, when you compare the end product of your best candidate and your suboptimal formulation or your third candidate with a very good formulation, the end result could be that the product that was good enough ends up actually being better in the end than your best candidate. So always going for the perfect or the best is not necessarily in the end going to give you the result that you want. Sometimes, a lot of times, good enough will in the, even though it doesn't seem like it, mm -hmm. this sounds really, really philosophic or almost platitudistic, but it's absolutely true. Sometimes good enough in the long run is going to get you to a much better place than continually trying to only pick the best. No, I feel like that's wisdom, what you just were saying, because, um, you know, I myself being Asian American, um, second generation, and uh, grew up in a sport where perfection was demanded. Um, I, f I always felt like good enough wasn't enough. But I think you're right, you know, just that perseverance um, portion of it that you're talking about is what is going to get you where you want to be and do what you love to do. Right. Is that what you're trying to say? What you're saying to me? That <laughs> That's what I heard. That is a very good summary of what I was trying to say. Yeah, I, mean, I mean, everyone always says 
the, the line is follow your passion. And that is an admiral, admiral, ad, admirable goal to mm-hmm. follow to do that. But very few people get to actually do that particular sort of pathway because passion is, can be transitory and you need a good foundation for that. And I even say that properly and you need a good foundation yeah. for that so that both it is a foundation and then you can do what you like to do, but you aren't beholden to being whatever transient terms of passion that you are interested in, because there are many days, many days of anyone's life where you're just not going to like what you do. And if only thing that is bowing you is your passion, you're, it's going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. But if you know that you have a good foundation, you can work through those days that are just not good. Yes. And, you know, in the end was, a you know, and, if your early times were designed, were, were in times where that's, you were just always struggling to never meet up to any sort of satisfaction, mm-hmm. that's going to be really tough in my opinion. So, yeah. you know, both enjoy, but it's PhD, the working on my PhD has definitely told me that perseverance is, is seriously underrated. That more than anything else, I think is a skill and maybe a little bit of talent that will get you where you want to go. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the easiest thing, nor is it the most sexiest thing in terms of getting your goals. Like, oh, you're just working through, you know, the day by day that type of thing. But if you have a goal and it's a goal that you want to do, working at it a little bit every particular day, you don't have to be the best at it, you know, but if that's what you want to do, you know, continue at it. You yeah, know, the, the, it, yeah. the, 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 I'm not, I was never really sure if it was, this was meant to be a, both a mean spirited joke or not, but I always took it to heart in terms of the good enough aspect is, I guess it is a little bit mean spirited, but it kind of proves the point is that what student who graduates at the bottom of his class. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You call him doctor, mm-hmm. meaning that my dad uses sti- that one all the time. <laughs> which means that he's it, a person who still graduates, who still achieved their goal. It, and being at last in the school doesn't mean you're going to be a bad doctor. Being the top of the school doesn't mean that you're going to be a great doctor. Yeah, because agreed. there's agreed. still so much time mm-hmm. afterwards that everyone's life changes. You have different experiences. You know, I would be willing to bet that, you know, I'd be willing to put money on the last, the person who made it last as close to doing just equally as good opportunity to do as great things as person who graduated valedictorian of their med school. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, summing up, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And if you don't get your perfect, you can still achieve the goals that you want. Yeah. You know, it's a long term. It's not a sprint. It is a it is a marathon. So yeah. it's not it's not where the end of the goal. It's not just achieving it. It's but what you want to do with it. And that's actually the more important. So becoming what you want to be when you grow up is. Well, that's not the end goal. That's honestly the starting point. Sure. What you yeah. do after you grow up, which I find much more interesting, 
much more rewarding. Mm. Um, and that's really where, you know, that's where everything starts, I think. Yeah. I think they do have a word for it, though. I think it's called grit. You know, <laughs> gotta have grit. <laughs> I suppose so have that's grit, true. people. <laughs> well, thank you so much again for your time, Dr. Hum. Thank um, you very much, Blair. I'm super uh, grateful and um, just sharing your knowledge with us and with me uh, in particular, I learned a lot today. Um, If you enjoyed this episode and you learned a lot and you just want uh, to share with us, we would love to hear it. You can email uh, us at podcastwigu, W-I-G-U, at gmail.com or, um, you know, hit us up on social media or wherever we're posted. Uh, We'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions about chemical engineering or biomedical engineering i cannot answer them but maybe i can put you in touch with somebody that can right tony Uh, if anyone had questions i'll be more than happy to correspond with you (laughs) thank you so much all right guys until next time bye bye